Hi everybody, Eric from Hit Subscribe here, and I'm sorry to be a little bit late, I kind of lost track of time, but um, nothing to be done about that now, I suppose. Anyway, today I have kind of an interesting question to tackle in the sense that somebody asked a question in our Slack that is um, sort of specific, so I'm going to get to that question, and that has to do with how would you go about pricing um, services around legacy code? Uh, but before I can get to that, which because that'll confuse a lot of people, I kind of want to tackle the subject of pricing uh, a little bit more broadly. So the way I couch this video is kind of a primer for freelancers who are looking for information um, about how to price their services. Now, a lot of you that are, are watching this are probably wondering, what are you talking about? What do you mean price your services? You just set an hourly rate and then you charge that rate and that's how life works, right? Uh, well, no, uh, there are other ways to price your services and to price the things that you're going to do. And um, I'm going to get into a few of those options, but understand that hourly isn't the only way you can price your services. And I'm going to make a case for why it's the absolute worst way to price your services over the long haul. But um, also understand that that's probably what you ought to do when you get started uh, going off on your own because it's the most comfortable and it's what everybody expects. And to do things differently, you can either incur a lot of risk or you can, you know, have people say, what are you talking about? No, just what's your hourly rate? So it's like, it's not easy for a freelancer to engage a different pricing model. So I don't want you to go out and absolutely refuse to have an hourly rate in the beginning, just on principle. Um, so understand kind of that perspective that it's uh, sort of like in the video I did where I talked about um, the different uh ways that you could approach using or getting business and, and whether to use a platform like Upwork or not. Uh, it's a good way to do it in the beginning. It's kind of a crutch. You should get away from it. Same thing with hourly billing. So um, putting that aside for the moment, what are these pricing models? Uh, I'm going to talk about a few today. So there's hourly. Everybody knows what that is. Hourly billing is basically, it's the same as being an employee. It's just that like the unit of time is priced differently, meaning as an employee, you make, you know, 100000 a year or whatever. You could actually deconstruct that into an hourly rate. That's probably about $51 an hour or something. Um, and it's the idea of charging for your labor or more specifically for units of time. So I'm a human and I'll do whatever you want for an hour and I'm selling you this hour of my life. That's kind of the the uh, employment model, and it's the incumbent model for a freelancer. The next thing that you might do, or, or another way to tackle freelance services, is you could do flat pricing. So if you build websites, for instance, you could say um, the hourly way would be, you know, I charge $100 an hour, and I'm just going to go get started, and I'm going to build a website, and I'll let you know how much it costs when it's done. The flat pricing way would be, you could just say, I'm going to build you a website for $10,000. Now, if you say that you're going to build someone a website for $10,000, if you spend 10,000 hours building a website at a dollar an hour is your effective hourly rate, like that's probably not what you're going for. Likewise, if you got so efficient that you could build websites in 10 hours, then now uh, effective hourly rate wise, that looks pretty good. You're building this $10,000 website in 10 hours. You're making $10,000 in a long workday pretty good. So the thing that flat pricing does is it lets you, um, you know, fix the actual cost of the deliverable you're offering and then try to get more efficient with your own deliverable as you do it more and more. A related but not quite the same way of pricing would be called cost plus. 
And this you'll see a lot um, in people that sell commodities uh, or businesses that sell commodities, things like that. So cost plus means that you figure out what it's going to cost you to deliver something and then you layer margin on top. So if you set a flat price, the last model, of $10,000 and you figure out that it costs you $2,000 on average to deliver that thing, your margin is 80%. Cost plus would be if you figure out up front that you um, have to spend $2,000 to get this thing done, and then you say, well, I want to earn you know, a 50% margin, I'm going to charge $4,000 for it. So cost plus, you figure out your cost first, and then decide what to charge um, on top of it, to have the margin that you want on top of your cost, versus flat as you kind of you know go according to what the market will bear, and then you try to be efficient on the backside. And the last thing I'll cover is kind of the nirvana of pricing for a lot of people, uh, which would be value-based pricing. And this is a situation where both you and the customer are going to be super happy because value pricing is where you get called in to do some kind of work, like build a website, and you're able to, through kind of a sophisticated discovery process, ascertain how valuable this project is to the client. And then you just kind of agree to work for a cut of what that is. So, um, for instance, let's say that somehow or another you knew that this website that you were going to build for the client was going to give them an opportunity to make an extra $1 million a year in revenue. So if you do your part, this person is going, or this business is going to be making an extra million dollars a year. So you go to them and say, I want 200,000 for this website, uh, which over the next five years is going to make you 5 million extra dollars. So the question then is, would you pay $500,000 for something that will earn you $5 million? And most people would say yes. So value pricing is really a way that if you both agree on the parameters of what you're doing being valuable, you kind of like both win. The person commissioning this work to get this extra $5 million doesn't really care how many hours you spend on it or like what your cost is. Who cares? I would spend $500,000 if it were going to bring me $5 million. I don't really care what you do for that $500,000 as long as it brings me the $5 million. So those are the pricing models. Um, talking a little bit about each one and how they work and I guess the good and the bad, and then we'll get into this uh, question, which is essentially like how do you maybe go about value pricing things to do with legacy code versus doing a flat rate or hourly. Um, so I'll describe what legacy code is here in a moment, and then... Um, I'll talk about kind of some ideas for that off the cuff. But um, let's, like, I guess dive a little bit more into the pricing models. So I'm kind of bagging on hourly billing here. Um, what is the trouble with hourly billing? Like, how does this work? Um, why am I bagging on it? Um, so there's why hourly billing is bad for you as a service provider. There's why it's bad for your customers. Uh, let me t tackle those two things separately. So... Uh, I'll talk about why it's bad for your customers first. Um, hourly billing is basically uh, a paradigm where, if you actually think about it, the less efficient the person doing the work is, the more money they make. So um, let's say, for instance, that uh, I had a big, thick book um, that I wanted transcribed, um, and I had never heard about optical character recognition. So I come to you and I say, hey, I'm going to pay you $10 an hour. And I want you to go to your computer and type up this book, like just page by page, transcribe everything in this book. And I'm going to pay you $10 an hour for that. Now, if this takes you 100 hours, you're going to make 1,000. If it takes you 1,000 hours, you're going to make $10,000. So as far as you're concerned, the longer it takes you, 
the more money you're going to make, the more steady work that you're going to have, etc. And you're probably not going to go into it thinking in those terms, but you'll probably get there after enough time because you have no incentive to work faster. So um, as you're typing it up and doing this drudge work, you, you know, maybe you're enthusiastic about it at first, but after a while you realize this is utter toil. It's the most miserable thing you could be doing. So you start to think like, well, I'm going to watch YouTube videos while I do this. I'm going to listen to music while I do it. And sure, it'll make me less efficient. But Eric, you're a horrible human being for paying me this little to do this awful work and you kind of deserve it. It serves you right. So like that's the natural incentive. The only thing stopping the hourly laborer from kind of gold breaking that way is I guess professional pride and or the threat that at some point I'm going to say, hey, why is this taking you 50,000 hours? I, I smell a rap. And then the lawsuits start, as anybody who has worked for an app dev agency knows. The way that app dev agencies billing by the hour tend to work is they give you an estimate um, and then they do work and then they go slamming through that estimate and the money piles up and sooner or later the threats and the lawsuits start. Uh, it's kind of the hourly world. So that's not the best customer experience. Typically the best case scenario is that they hit or slightly exceed their estimate um, and everybody's kind of like, yeah, good, that's done. Um, and then, you know, imagine this on your own, like if you're hiring, let's say, somebody to fix your air conditioning, your house is sweltering, it's the middle of the summer, it's miserable, and you call up uh, two service providers. One says, yeah, I'll, and I'll fix your air conditioning today for $500. The other one says, um, I don't know, who can say how much this is going to cost? I'm going to come out, and the longer it takes me, the more it costs you. So the longer you don't have air conditioning, the more you pay me. Uh, which one of those are you going to do? Are you going to kind of like go with the one that gives you a fixed price where you can, you know, or are you going to like play kind of wheel of misfortune with the other vendor? It's a better experience to get a price up front rather than a guess. So um, your customers are in that situation. If you are quoting them an hourly rate and somebody else is saying like, I'll absorb all the risk and all in, I'll do it for this, that other person has a significant advantage. Now, getting into flat pricing, um, that's typically what they're doing. Those of you in the app dev world might be shaking your head saying it's only the you know most bargain basement firms that do flat pricing. Sort of. Um, typically, you can win business by giving a very low flat price. And um, you have to be kind of desperate to do that if you're doing really custom work and you're competing around the same amount. For you to guarantee a price where everybody else is estimating means you're probably thirsty for work. What I would suggest if you're going to do flat pricing is that you think in terms of what it'll probably take you and build a lot of buffer in there. And then you're going to go to your potential customer and say, um, you know, I'm going to build you this website for $50,000. Now, what you're thinking is um, at your hourly rate, you would estimate that it would be, you know, twenty or $30,000. you are building in a lot of buffer so that even if you're wrong and it goes over, you're still not, you know, getting into the red or doing it for less than you want. The way you can position that to a customer is to say, listen, um, you can, you know, have it from somebody in an hourly rate, or you can pay extra, but you'll get peace of mind. I guarantee you this rate. There's no scope creep, nothing. You know, I'm not going to come back with surprises. And there are a lot of people that will take that certainty, especially businesses, uh, if they're like CFOs involved or whoever. People will appreciate certainty more than a little bit of cost savings between vendors. So that's flat pricing. Um, it does still carry some risk because often as a freelancer, if you are flat pricing your work, you're basically guessing how long it's going to take, building in buffer, but that's still a guess. So you're guessing and then you're hoping you can make it up on the backside. Now, there is one place where um, 
flat pricing does work out quite well. It's if you're doing a, a productized service. So you get so good at, at repeatedly delivering this deliverable that there's not a lot of uncertainty. Subscribe does this with blog posts and content roadmaps, content campaigns. We do them so much that even if in one instance we're wrong about how much it costs in one direction or the other in aggregate, like we understand our costs, and it isn't a reach for me to say that we can deliver a blog post for X number of dollars. We've done it something like 4,000 times by now. Um, so the better and more specialized you get in a deliverable, the easier it is to, number one, flat price, but then also we'll transition here into talking about cost plus. If you get really good and repeated and deliverable at a productized service, you start to really understand your costs, and then you do have the option to cost plus. For instance, um, if you start to see competition in the market and you know what your average cost are, you can lower your price, still understanding that you can capture a margin and that with that additional business, you maybe do more volume and you make up that margin. So cost plus is pretty nice because especially as a, a service provider, you start to understand your own deliverable super well, well enough that your costs are predictable, that your margin is predictable. So if you can get to that point, I recommend it. Um, in terms of like a maturity spectrum, if you will, um, hourly kind of transitions to flat. You start naming some flat priced engagements, and then if you deliver on that and it goes well, you're going to look for more engagements like that, price them flat. You start to understand your cost better and better, and then you can transition if you want into a cost plus model or just get more efficient and uh, improve your margin in the flat. Last up is value pricing. Um, with value pricing, you, the reason I call this Nirvana is your cost starts to not matter. The customer has an amount that they want to pay for an outcome, and they're willing to pay anything, um, you know, up to, uh, pick a percent, maybe like 10% of what they're going to return or something. So they start to not get into the weeds with you about how many hours you're spending or what the cost is. They have their eyes on the prize and they have reason to believe that you can deliver that prize. So what hourly or sorry, um, value based pricing lets you do is capture some of the largest margins imaginable. So uh, there's this aphorism out there that's um, it's the story of like, uh, you know, gray beard um, consultant factory worker type person gets a call and this whole factory is shut down they can't ship anything it's costing them you know uh, ten thousand dollars an hour in lost production so they call this person in and he uh, comes into the shop looks around picks up a hammer whacks this machine um, in the factory and everything starts working again and they're back to delivering their ten thousand dollars an hour worth of value uh, next day, he sends an invoice for $5,000 for the repairs, and the, you know, factory floor manager is incensed, like, you know, uh, I want to see an itemized invoice. How can you justify this $5,000 for five minutes of work? The itemized invoice, it comes back and it says $5 for the hammer labor and $4,995 for knowing exactly where to hit the machine with the hammer. So the idea there is if you're hemorrhaging $10,000 an hour, you're probably not going to act like that factory worker if... Um, or that factory floor manager, and if you were that graybeard consultant, what you would do is come in, look at the situation, and say, I can fix this for you for $5,000. Now, the factory floor manager who's losing $10,000 an hour, done. Like, there's no hesitation. I, you know, I don't care what you do. If this is working again soon, I will pay you this $5,000. So you get in with value-based pricing where you're really understanding. You're an expert in what your clients need, and you're such an expert that you're able to deliver like prodigious value with your outcomes predictably. 
then people stop caring about your labor in any way. As long as you can deliver these outcomes, you can almost name your price. And when you do that, your margins can be astronomical. And uh, that's why I call it Nirvana. So what we're talking about here today, um, having laid all that out, all that pricing background, is um, somebody who is talking about, uh, let me see if I have an anonymized version of this question up here, but basically, um, how do you get to value pricing and things to do with legacy code? So um, I'm helping teams with legacy code and often the client can't really put a price on fixing that. So I put a price on it and hope it's okay for them. Um, maybe the solution is to keep doing more discovery or go a productized service route. So like how would you get away from hourly pricing and more towards value pricing in this world of legacy code? So uh, for anybody watching that doesn't understand this, what is legacy code? Legacy code is sort of like the septic system in your house. It's a thing that just works, and if you're ever knee-deep in how it works, something has gone horribly wrong. So in the world of commerce, um, legacy software systems are systems that are out there in the wild and are working and have been working for years, and they've been working to the point where the people who built them have either left or long since forgotten how it works, and anytime anybody has to go in and make changes to those systems, it's risky and scary and a problem across the board. You see this a lot in government systems, banks, manufacturing, places with like old technology infrastructure, old mainframes, green screens. Um, I actually saw a year ago, like around the start of the pandemic, I think it was the state of New Jersey, was bringing all these like 70 and 80 year old COBOL programmers out of retirement because their um, unemployment mainframe system was so overloaded that it was crashing and nobody knew how to fix it. Classic example of legacy code. So it's this kind of like ticking time bomb that you ideally do something about before there's an emergency. So a better solution for the state of New Jersey would have been if over the, over the five years leading up to the pandemic, they had had this kind of remediation plan in place and they had been migrating to like a newer system where you had a workforce that was familiar with it, worked on it regularly, understood how to um, maintain and fix it. So what the person asking this question is talking about is he's saying that he helps customers that have these legacy systems um, probably uh, be more proactive and, and get out in front of them and remediate it. And remediating legacy systems involves helping them either migrate to a more modern platform or going in and modernizing that platform itself or otherwise um, creating less risk around that platform. So the question here is, let's assume that a, um, a customer has called them up to help with a legacy system in some fashion. Maybe they want to retire it, or maybe they want to make it less risky, or uh, make it a little more like modular and easy to maintain so that if things do come up, it's easier to fix. And so the question there is, um, how do you do this in any way other than um, value, or uh, sorry, hourly billing? If you wanted to go the productized service route and create a repeat deliverable, um, the trouble there is that legacy work, working on somebody's legacy code base tends to be two things, unpredictable and varied. So no two legacy systems are going to look that much alike. If bank A says, hey, we have this legacy system, can you help us reduce the risk and get more people uh, able to work on this and, and whatnot? That system might be written in one programming language, um, it might be designed in one way, and in that case maybe there are a couple of engineers there that know the system, versus if our uh, question asker then goes over to, to a manufacturing firm, maybe it's a different programming language, different design parameters, maybe there's nobody there that knows anything, and maybe they just want to like 
kind of do the minimum possible to keep it in place while they build a new thing. So the idea is that there isn't a ton, even though the, um, the focus is the same, legacy systems, there isn't a ton of repeatability across the, um, the different kind of customers that you might have. So to go the productized service route, you kind of have to create that repeatability. And there you might do it by having something that's like um, a standard legacy code base assessment. So you might design something where for, let's say, a you know, flat $15,000 fee, you come in and do a legacy code assessment and remediation plan, and you ask a standard set of questions, like you give it a, you know, a kind of risk score, a volatility score, um, maybe some things along those lines. So there what you're doing is you're creating this repeatable deliverable where you're extracting what could be common across all these different clients, even if it's not that much. And maybe you lead in with that as like a paid discovery. So like the first way I engage with any client in this situation is I have this, um, this assessment that I do where I get a sense for how bad your code base is. You get a, you know, a score from, you know, green to red or burning fire engine red uh, about how bad the situation is, how imminent your risk is and so on and so forth. And then as part of that discovery, you could segue into a more like custom engagement, I guess. Um, and or as part of that um, initial engagement, one of the things you would ascertain is the uh, client's risk level. And so to transition into the value pricing, the way I would probably just off the cuff and with a relatively limited amount of time to talk about this, the way I would do a services-based um, legacy code arrangement value priced is I would really look to um, try to put a dollar value on the client's risk. So if the state of New Jersey pre-pandemic is calling you in and, and saying, hey, um, we've got this really old system and we want you to help modernize this part of it or help us um, kind of decouple it to like minimize the risk, you kind of dig in and say, what is this risk that we're talking about? Like, what happens if this goes down? Uh, no unemployment claims are processed. Well, all right, how many people are on unemployment? And what's the, uh, what's the average value of an unemployment claim? And so then at least, you know, if the average value of somebody on unemployment claims, you know, $10,000 over the course of their unemployment stint, and at any given time you've got, you know, 15,000 people in the state on unemployment, so 15,000 times 10,000, well into the millions. So even though it doesn't directly tie that, like, if this system went down, the state would be losing, you know, 15 million or 1.5, whatever that worked out to. I forgot how many zeros I said, but... The state isn't necessarily losing 15 million if the system goes down per se, but that's the kind of money volume you're talking about. This is, you know, to the uh, citizens of New Jersey, this state, uh, this, this system is worth $15 million a month or whatever it may be. And so what you're coming in doing is saying something like, look, I'm going to help you here. There's $15 million a month at stake. And if I can reduce the risk of that whole thing blowing up from, you know, 10% in a given month to 1% in a given month, I can kind of put a quantification on that that's, you know, worth 1.5-ish million dollars that month. So um, that's all pretty abstract, I guess, but the thing I would do with the legacy system is look at the um, current situation that exists. Now imagine a catastrophic failure of that legacy system. What happens? Do you have to call COBOL programmers out of retirement and pay them $800 an hour? Uh, do you just, you know, are you a bank and you just, nobody can get at their checking account for a while? Are you losing accounts and new signups? 
So if you start to do an assessment of what does catastrophic failure of the system look like, you can start to figure out what's at risk with this client should this system go down, and then you can start to figure out the value of mitigating that risk. So that has been my primer on pricing, I guess, from the beginner level of, you know, uh, give me 80 bucks an hour to um, value pricing. I hope I haven't covered too much ground there. Um, for the person asking that question, I hope that's an interesting answer. We can um, talk more about it later at some point if you want, but that's absolutely how I would structure that. And for everybody else, I hope this has been kind of an interesting uh, meandering treatment of uh, the subject of pricing for service-based business. And, and I should have said that, by the way. I'm really only looking at pricing models as they pertain to freelancing, which is generally almost by definition a service-based offering. You're offering services for money. So uh, bear that in mind. I'm not talking about like pricing commodities and, and whatnot. So yeah, I hope that's interesting and I will uh, catch you all next time.